Anyway, we all know now you got to get a zombie in the brain. <laughs> we all need a zombie apocalypse plan. And we all need good walking shoes. If there's nothing else, then we walked away with that information. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Hello, this is Maureen, and Melissa will join us in just a moment. I wanted to take a moment to thank you or the algorithm for selecting us for your listening pleasure, and also to give you a little context since this is our inaugural episode. I won't over-explain because I know you're very smart and you get it. Our podcast is called Ret Connection because we love a portmanteau so much we combined an existing one, Retcon, with Connection. We thought that title explained what we wanted to do, which is connect with you over those TV shows that we loved, we felt invested in, but for whatever reason, did or did not end the way that we wanted. To round out the conversation, we'll talk about TV nostalgia, how we watch then versus how we watch now, the psychology of storytelling, and of course, the long, weird, and beautiful history of fan fiction. We hope you enjoy. Before we talk about your pick for a show that ended too soon, let's talk about the endings. When something ends, either it's a satisfying ending or we're sad it's ending or it was a terrible ending or we didn't get an ending. It got pulled off the air before we got an ending. I think when it comes to our entertainment, it's important because a lot of times in life, we don't get closure on things. So I think when you're watching something that you know is bringing you joy or pleasure in some way it's it's an escape you want no loose ends because life has loose ends life is frustrating and we don't want to see that with the things that are supposed to be the distraction from real life yeah well not to subject you to too much of a lecture from me (laughs) i did a little digging as an english major where they make us start with aristotle and poetics and see what aristotle had to say about plot and resolution what's fascinating about it i think is most of the structure that we see today the three-act structure the four-act structure the five-act structure is laid out in aristotle so We've got this character, character wants something, something's going to happen to keep them from getting it, and then either they'll get it, and that's a comedy, or they won't get it, and that's a tragedy. Right. It doesn't matter what order you tell the story in, it doesn't matter how experimental it is, or if you do it in 10 two-minute episodes, or if you do it in 100 hour-long episodes, since the beginning of storytelling and back from when we would sit around the campfire, the plot stays the same. And we do have a bond to these characters too. If you guys just watching the Americans having those feelings of stress, well, you don't just feel that stress. Your body releases cortisol when you feel that stress or adrenaline. (laughs) When you have empathy and when you really care for a character, your body releases dopamine. Your body releases oxytocin. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. A couple of things I found that I thought related were something called the peak end rule, which the way that I interpret it is our brains tend to shorthand all of our experiences into the best part or the most dramatic part, the apex, plus the end. We remember the end because that's the thing that happened closest to when we experienced it. Mm, So literally in the timeline, that is our most recent memory. All those years ago, when you came to Charleston the first time, we did many things. But what we remember is that you lost your wallet on the side of the highway (laughs) and that we found it because it was so dramatic. And what were the chances, you know, because that's the highlight, our memory works to solidify that. And then the last study, it just came out um, in 2022, 
University of Chicago, what it said was that we prefer being able to foresee an ending Mm -hmm. than trying something new. That also speaks to the formula. Why are these series or movies or whatever that have a particular bump, 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 more successful than something a little more experimental. We make meaning based on what we can control because that's our survival (laughs) mechanism and control equals thriving. It's chaos that equals destruction. That's fascinating. I will go ahead and link these uh, in the show notes. Just like comfort watching because you know what's coming, what you have to pay attention to versus what you know already is down the road. It makes a lot of sense. It kept going through my mind was, oh yeah, we're all control freaks. <laughs> we're just born that way. It's better to be in control than out of control. <laughs> Let's do it. You're too short. My too short pick is a series called I Am Not Okay With This. It's based on a graphic novel of the same name by Charles Forsman, and he is also the writer of The End of the Fucking World on Netflix. It's a very similar kind of vibe. Uh, It was developed for TV by Jonathan Entwistle and Christy Hall, and Entwistle also worked on End of the Fucking World. It was on Netflix for just one season in 2020, starring Sophia Lillis, Wyatt Olaf, Sophia Bryant, and Kathleen Rose Perkins, who you may remember from episodes. She played Carol. She's great in this. It's a dark comedy about superpowers disguised as teenage angst. This was just a one-season show that was a casualty of bad timing. It premiered in February of 2020. It was renewed almost immediately in April of 2020, but it was eventually canceled after COVID-19 filming complication and delays. There's just seven short episodes full of great writing and interesting characters. And it follows high schooler Sydney Novak, who is going through all the awkwardness of being a teenager. She lives in a really small town in Pennsylvania, full of narrow-minded people. She's also dealing with the recent confusing suicide of her father. And she's being raised alongside her younger brother by a struggling single mom. She has two good friends. One is her weird but sweet neighbor, Stanley, and her popular best friend, Dina. Her guidance counselor encourages her to journal about her anger over her father's death, and she starts to realize her rage and big feelings aren't just teenage angst, but special powers she may have. Like her best friend Dina's boyfriend Brad is an obnoxious creep, and she gives him a nosebleed just by imagining it. She's buying some groceries and ends up, she doesn't have enough money at the register, so she has to put some stuff back. And she's spiraling from the shame of it and the anger that she's feeling. And as she's walking through one of the aisles of the grocery store, everything falls off the shelves. She doesn't understand what's happening to her, but she knows she's not just imagining things. She's questioning it. And then she leaves a party and she's kind of walking home and she is embarrassed about something that happened. And she has a moment where she runs into the woods and screams and all these trees collapse around her. And her friend Stanley witnesses it. And at that point, He knows her secret and he can say, yes, you really do have these powers. So they bond together and they start testing her abilities. As she uses her powers more and more, she feels like she's being followed by this presence, a dark figure, like a shadow. And she starts to believe it may somehow be connected to her father's death, but she can't really figure out the mystery of that yet. What I really like about the show is it's, it's sad and it's sweet and it's very dark, but the teenagers are so good in the show. All the actors And the dialogue is really believable. And we've obviously seen plenty of times where that goes the other direction. You're like, nobody talks like this, not even adults. There's a conversation between Sydney and her mom, and it's very emotional. And she explains how her dad struggled with his mental health. And it's a good conversation that they have about this. And she's saying, if you ever experienced this, please tell me about it. But as she's doing that, Sydney, he realizes that this is stuff she's experiencing that her mom is explaining her dad said or did she's like this is me he had these same powers of course things go horribly wrong and uh dina's boyfriend is a bully he's really obnoxious so he steals this journal that sydney's guidance counselor had advised her to write in which reminded me of when you and i kept a journal in high school (laughs) and we misplaced it it never gets stolen or (laughs) left, left behind we were really lucky her journal gets stolen. She's written every detail about what she's going through, plus all her big feelings in it. Dina's boyfriend, Brad, very cruelly outs 
Sydney and all of her secrets at the homecoming dance. She violently and in a nod to Carrie explodes his head in front of everybody, blood everywhere. It's it is spectacular and shocking. So she's running and running and leaving, and it's people are screaming and fleeing out of the school, and she's so afraid people are chasing her, but you know, they don't know what happened yet. She hears something, she turns and she sees that mysterious figure that she felt like was following her. And she said, should I be afraid? And the this like phantom thing speaks and said, they should be afraid. And then he says, let's begin. So all you know is that he is following her. He knows about her powers. Let's begin. You just assume he's going to teach her how to use them, but you don't know how. And it just leaves you hanging. It's a cliffhanger because they knew they were going to come back. But a lot happens in seven episodes. It's funny. It goes by very fast. And I would like to have seen where they were going to go with that one. And I have not dug too much to find out what the graphic novel, where it goes, but we'll do that now. I watched the whole thing in like an afternoon. It's been in my queue for a lifetime. Well, it was part of my quarantine list. I was like, let's just see what there is. And it was brand new. It was so good. It was exciting and fun show to watch. And then I forgot all about it. And I went through, what are these shows that I've watched that didn't, didn't get to really be fully realized? So many COVID casualties. Right. What are some of those classic earworm favorite TV theme songs? Okay. My favorites popped right into my head. At the very top of the list is the Mr. Belvedere theme song, which was sung by Leon Redbone. It's a great classic. If we want to sing a line or two. Right, right, right. Okay. It goes, streets on the China, never mattered before. Who cares? When you drop, kick your jacket as you came through the door. No one's no there. <laughs> now I remember. That is a good one. That's a good one. And then um, second would be the Blossom theme song, which was Dr. John. Give us a good one that you love. I have a list as long as my arm. I tried to narrow it down to the ones that I would find myself singing. And I think the one most frequently sang for some reason is, Baby, if you ever wondered, wondered whatever became of me. I'm living on the air in Cincinnati. Cincinnati, Um, It's Gary Shandling's show, classic. Adam's family, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a favorite that we both love because we sang it at our high school graduation. And it's the greatest American hero. That's a great song. It's a great song. And I don't want that to get forgotten by anyone. No, no. <laughs> the next category is what show went on too long? And I feel like I want to say at the outset of this category that all the shows that we choose are shows we love. Yes. Because we aren't just picking shows to pick on them. We love them and we're invested in them. And Mm -hmm. then for the ones where we could have tied up a way that was a little more satisfying for us as fans, it's just because we loved them at one time. This one for me, The Walking Dead, which debuted on Halloween in 2010. Oh, it did. On AMC. And it just ended in 2021 with spinoffs galore. So you might not even realize that it ended. Robert Kirkman is the creator and executive producer based on his graphic novels. Gail Ann Hurd from the outset was executive producer for the first season. Frank Darabont was executive producer and showrunner. There was a little bit behind the scenes kerfuffle. Frank Darabont left kind of quickly. Glenn Mazzara stepped in as showrunner. And after Glenn Mazzara, Scott Gimple stepped in as showrunner. Starring our boy Andrew Lincoln, best known for the large cue cards in Love Actually, (laughs) previous to Walking Dead fame. Norman Reedus plays Daryl Dixon. Melissa McBride plays Carol. Denai Guerrera plays Michonne. Lauren Cohan plays Maggie. It's a cast of thousands and many die along the way. And I haven't mentioned everyone who's important because I mean, it's a million people. I gave up on this show season 6.5. You sent me a tweet a couple of weeks ago that said, (laughs) 
I don't want your small talk. What I want to know is when did you give up on Walking Dead? <laughs> and I felt extremely seen. I knew exactly when. As you know, to me, this show was everything, everywhere, all at once. I was like, <laughs> this is the best thing that's ever been broadcast. Nothing will ever touch it. It's about the human condition and our fears, how we form social groups, how not divorced from our cave brains we are and what we look for when we're looking for a leader how we treat each other transactionally versus when we have empathy and love for each other and all of those things. Plus the effects were fucking amazing. The <laughs> slow burn of some of the uh, parts of the series, like when Rick's riding the horse into Atlanta, poor fucking horse. There's a episode, one that just sticks in my mind, Chandler Riggs, finds a big cafeteria can of chocolate pudding and he's sitting on a roof somewhere eating this chocolate pudding leisurely out of the can. And it's just a real, this is life in the apocalypse moment. Anyway, I can't say enough things about how much I love this show. And then when they got to Alexandria and they started teasing that Negan was coming I just thought, I just don't want to do this cycle again. I've seen the bad guy, you know, David Morrissey had done his thing and John Barenthal had done his thing and the preacher guy had done his thing. And maybe there were 10 at that point that were semi nihilist lords. I don't, I, I, I can't even remember all of them. I just thought I've seen this cycle. And all that changes is the face of the bad guy and who's competing over resources. And I can watch the news for that. So, <laughs> and so when they got to Alexandria, some beautiful relationships and friendships started to form. It wasn't necessarily that I wanted them to have a utopia and just kind of settle down and be, it was a happy ending, but it was reasonable that they could still have conflict and drama and zombies within this world and not have to move on to yet another bad guy who was going to start killing people with a bat. I remember this episode, I was almost out. Rick takes the RV to go lead a bunch of walkers far away from Alexandria. And the payoff is he's going to lead them all into a pit. The things that I loved about the slow burn in the beginning started to really get on my nerves. You could see the leaves falling from the trees. The RV had a flat tire. He heard noises outside, but was it anything? Runs out of gas. You know, is he in peril? And I'm just like, oh my God. The payoff was great though. Seeing all these walkers driven into a big crater in the earth was pretty cool. And so I said, I'll stick in there for a little while longer. Season six ended in November before Thanksgiving. And then it wasn't going to come back again until late January. Alexandria was breached. A bunch of people died. They make this um, human chain covered in guts. That was one of the best. <laughs> all the things we learned about how to dispatch zombies. We kind of learned in other iterations like zombie land and, you know, we, you got to hit them in the brain and right. They eat flesh and da, 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 da. covering yourself in flesh, dead flesh <laughs> to get past them. That was special when they pulled that out. All these things we know now. I don't necessarily know that that would have been the place to end it, but I know that in my mind, I just have them still on the compound doing their end runs and whatever. I haven't followed any of the spinoffs or any of the Negan stuff and don't plan on it. They just ran out of road and then they just kept fucking walking on it. Whatever was <laughs> climbing over those tree branches. <laughs> what made it kind of funny, unintentionally funny, was how slow the zombies are. <laughs> 
course, it's when you're caught by surprise or you open up a trunk and there's a zombie in there or somebody turns like Rick's first wife turns as she's giving birth to Judith. You know, those things. Yeah, there's that element of surprise. But when they're at the jail and they've got <laughs> binoculars and they see a mile away, there's six zombies like. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. They never really address that. They're. They're always moving fast to get away from them. Because in The Last of Us, they're fast zombies. Do not fuck around with The Last of Us zombies. <laughs> That's why the Nick Offerman story was build explosives around and stay inside the explosive line. Yep. That's the only thing you can do. Staying three miles ahead of a bunch of slow zombies isn't that <laughs> big of a deal. You could, like, take a break and be like, okay, see him up there. Now we, we got to go back to <laughs> move it again. Uh, uh. This is our very special episode since it's our first episode. What are some of the very special episodes that you remember? So the one that really sticks in my head was uh, a Punky Brewster episode where there's an abandoned fridge in the backyard where Punky and Cherry and some of their other friends are playing and Cherry gets stuck in the fridge. And it was so scary, but I think the, the point of the episode was to teach kids how to use the CPR that they had just learned in school. They, she almost dies, but uh, they save her at the end. And that one is burned in my brain. Yeah, I can't shake that one. I vaguely remember that one. Yeah. I, I don't 100% remember. It sounds traumatizing, though. Very upsetting, yeah. <laughs> um, I remember the different strokes episode with the pedophile. And I wonder if my parents knew that it was going to be on because I just remember it being a little awkward. My parents watching it with us. That I was going to ask, did they watch it with you? And then yeah. talk about it afterwards or no, we didn't talk about it. I mean, we talked about stranger danger enough at school, but I definitely remember it just being like, a. I wonder if maybe you were just at the, the age where they were like, Maybe didn't go in. Hopefully, she just, <laughs> they didn't absorb it. Moving along. Babe. <laughs> the other honorable mention I wanted to give was to Facts of Life. They did everything. They did eating disorders. Yes, that's um, right. Gender expression. Yes, I think they also addressed abortion or abortion. You know, teen pregnancy. Racism. It's a good um, show. Yeah, it was really progressive and good. It really was. I, I didn't really think about that until you mentioned it, but they certainly did. I wonder when those the show writers or runners, when they decided to take things to a little heavier place, because they, they were all so, you know, generally lighthearted. I think Facts of Life did a good job of kind of doing it pretty consistently, but that was very out of the blue for Fresh Prince. Oh my God. Will and Carlton taking speed. <laughs> show that ended perfectly okay so this is a show that just wrapped this year so it's kind of fresh in my brain and that is the series succession that was on hbo uh, it was created by jesse armstrong executive producers are armstrong and adam mckay and will ferrell uh, it ran on hbo from 2018 to 2023 starring brian cox kieran culkin sarah snook jeremy strong ellen ruck and matthew mcfadden Succession is supposed to be loosely based on the Murdoch family and the media conglomerate Waystar Royco that, that the show is about is uh, obviously a nod to Fox News. Succession wrapped in May. I love that they only needed four seasons to tell the story. It never felt there were too many episodes. Oftentimes you're like, that was it. There were only 10 but they really effectively told the story without it feeling like it was a lot of show. And I think it was a very good example to shows that run 15 seasons or whatever that you don't need to do that. There was no filler. It was just good storytelling. From the very first episode, you understand that the patriarch of this family, Logan Roy, who's played by Brian Cox, is going to die because he has a heart attack in the first episode. The series is pretty much about which of his selfish, self-absorbed, and just generally incompetent adult children will inherit his media empire. They're all power hungry, they're all terrible, and they all still are fighting to win his approval as adults. His son Kendall is expected to be the first in line, but he keeps bungling things and he can't be trusted with, with anything. He seems like he's kind of the best one for the job, but he's 
just an idiot. His middle son, Roman, is really immature and has some super weird, freaky sex stuff that he does. And he's a partier. Siobhan is the lone daughter. She does not initially work for the company. She's a political fixer. And she's the only sort of liberal in a right-leaning family. She seems to feel like she has some kind of moral high ground. Because of that, she's just as bad as any of them, if not worse. And then there's Connor Roy, who is the eldest son from a previous marriage. And he's not really part of the circle of three that are fighting for that role. He has Trumpian political aspirations. In season four, he runs for office and just loses miserably. Beyond the children, everyone in Logan's inner and extended circle is completely opportunistic. And they're all basically just waiting for their chance to swoop in and gain a bit of power. His nephew, Greg, is a bumbling idiot, but he's also a pretty savvy turncoat. And there's Tom Wamsgans, Siobhan's husband, and he is an executive in the company already. And he's pretty much a spineless yes man, but he's also an underestimated weasel. Beyond the main plot of succeeding Logan Roy is this kind of overall theme of these really gross, miserable plutocrats who have the power to control the news cycle and possibly even they have the ability to sway an election and that comes up in the fourth season. And also the really great observation on class politics. There's an entire scene where two men are discussing the size of a bag that a woman brings to an event and how offensive it is. Why would she bring such a large bag? It's hilarious and terrible. The final season, Logan Roy does die. And even though you know it was coming, the way that they handled that particular scene was so weird and effective. He's on a plane and there's no family present except for the son-in-law, Tom, and a bunch of the members of the board. Everybody else is at a wedding and the cell phone is being passed among these adult children and they're getting news. He's not going to make it. We're doing, you know, the the chest compressions on him. And and you don't really believe it as a viewer that what you're watching isn't not a terrible prank, but you just think they're going to go, just kidding. I was testing you or something. It was really kind of shocking still. Mm. The reason that I believe the show ended so perfectly is because all these people that are fighting to the death for these positions of power, there's a literal knockdown drag out fight between two of the brothers great acting physically fighting rolling around on the floor and they're in this room with glass walls and then the other room is where the board meeting is happening to to determine who's going to take over and everybody's watching it it's very visible and they're fighting and screaming and it just kind of solidifies that none of them are suited for this role none of them get what they want or what they expect or what they felt they deserved and they all kind of walk away empty and lost and it was beautifully fitting for these terrible people to not get what they expected you do develop empathy for these characters because you kind of understand where how they got where they are but they're just just right up to the very end they're so awful to each other it was even beyond like the anti-hero thing because they're all really just shitty awful and they're personally miserable in their own relationships and their lives I never really felt like I was rooting for any of them except for their collective downfall. That was just, it was just so beautiful. It was perfect. Just exactly right. Well, I haven't seen it yet. I definitely will. For no other reason, the cast is just, wow, fantastic. But what I really appreciated about it was this is a series that was at the height of its power. Everyone was talking about how this was the best show on television one of the best shows ever, cast, the writing, all tens across the board. And coming into season three, the producer goes, hey, we're just going to do one more season. (laughs) We've seen that a few times now Mm -hmm. that this model is changing so much of if something's going great, we got to just get every single season out of it that we can to, no, I told the story I wanted to tell. Yeah. I want to be able to wrap it up the way that I want to wrap it up and not have them tell me, okay, you got to do it in six episodes and bring it in for that lovely landing where the creator still has that creative control. Even though I haven't seen it yet, I admire it for that reason. Mm-hmm. It didn't leave you wanting. There, there's probably some ambiguity at the end about a couple of characters and what happened to them, but it almost doesn't matter because you understood that you got the full story of these people. You got their whole lives, you got the full scope of it. 
ultimately they're not redeemable they're they're awful then they bring in even more awful people if you could believe it alexander skarsgård comes in and is fantastically gross a really bad person on the show and he's he's great it is so funny that that is his brand him and the guy everyone wants to fuck but he's disgusting <laughs> Back when Patty Griffin released the live album, A Kiss in Time, mm -hmm. and it had a promo DVD with it. I don't know if you remember that. I do remember that. It was great. Okay. When she was talking about when she writes her songs, that she sits with them a while and she has a almost a ceremonial thing where she acknowledges that they aren't her songs anymore. Because once she puts them out into the world, they belong to the listener, not the writer anymore. And I thought this was an interesting discussion about fan fiction and the way that we reimagine our favorite characters. Famously, Shonda Rhimes has said in the past, I don't really think too much about what the fans have to say. I just go into my room and I write. I find that if I'm thinking too much about what other people have to say, it makes it harder for me to do my job. So no, I don't worry about what, what the fans want versus something like Television Without Pity. For people who don't know, it was a website started with recaps of popular TV shows and it turned into a humongous fan forum and showrunners would sometimes go there and read up on what people were saying about the shows. Certain showrunners like J.J. Abrams said he found it helpful when he was thinking about storylines and where to go next. Other showrunners like Aaron Sorkin basically thumbed his nose and said, it's easy for you to sit behind a keyboard and complain about these things. But that idea of this engagement with the fandom saying, okay, we are creating this, but we are doing it for you. Of course, the tried and true long history of fan fiction and, you know, reimagining and retconning, which is what we're doing. So I guess the question is, who does the work belong to? I love this conversation because as a songwriter myself, I've had the experience where somebody had decided that my song was about something that it wasn't. But I didn't need to tell that person that. If that's what they took from it and they had a story, that's the best compliment I can imagine is they connected with it in a way that I never even expected. A as an artist, if you're able to put something out into the world and then understand that it is going to change once it leaves your hands in people's minds, people may take it and they may cover it and not just music, but we're talking about fan fiction. Once you give these lines of dialogue to these actors, they're going to interpret it, and it, it is theirs at that point. In different hands, it would have been a different interpretation, like Succession. One of the things I love so much about that show is the dialogue. It is just crushingly cruel and funny and quick. It's also believable that people would talk to each other like that. But if certain actors would say these lines, it would be a different interpretation. So as a writer myself, I think that the seeds of it belong to the writer, but then once you put it out there, they really kind of aren't yours. Hmm. This question of, does that art live yeah. separately? Of course, with television and film, we're also talking about commerce, right? We're talking about many of the endings that we didn't get were because of ratings, and many of the shows that went far too long were because of ratings. So we're not looking at it just for the creator and audience perspectives. As two people who've done theater, you're a team and the audience then, when it's refined, becomes part of that team. Right. And it isn't just the one actor. It is that ensemble that is working together. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a straight line between Shonda Rhimes and the audience. There's the art director. There's the actor. There's the cinematographer. There's, there's yeah. with Bridgerton, there's the, the source material. Right. Now we come to the part, we're going to rewrite the ending of a show. It could be a show that's still on the air. It could be a show that ended badly or sadly or wrongly <laughs> in some way. Or it could be a show that didn't get the dignity of having a conclusion because it got yanked off the air before its time. I guess off the air is become an antiquated term. Off the 
stream. Anyway, I know this is low-hanging fruit, but it also really illustrates well the premise. So I chose Grey's Anatomy. Shonda Rhimes, <laughs> of course, is the creator and executive producer for Shondaland. Betsy Beers is one of Shonda Rhimes' producing partners, and she's worked with her on all of her other projects. And then Krista Vernhoff is the showrunner now. Krista Vernhoff started her own production company and has a deal with ABC. It started airing in 2005 on ABC. It's still running. It stars Ellen Pompeo, James Pickens Jr., Chandra Wilson. Those are the three who have stuck it out. Patrick Dempsey, Isaiah Washington, Sandra Oh, Katherine Heigl, Tierra Knight, and Justin Chambers round out the original cast. I started watching this show around the age that these residents who had just come out of med school and into their residency would be. I of course, grew up with Patrick Dempsey in Can't Buy Me Love. My sister and I watched that movie on repeat. He kind of went away for a while, and then he had a bit of a resurgence when he came back as Will's boyfriend for a few episodes on Will and Grace. My allegiance to this show is with that starting cast and the fun, sexy, soapy plot lines I was unemployed for a time uh, around the recession. They had three episodes of Grey's Anatomy on Lifetime a day. And I watched three hours of Grey's Anatomy every day for <laughs> I don't know how long. It seems silly to say the show has gone on for too long. It's different, I believe, than a show like ER, where the rotation of the cast became integral to the show itself. And so it felt like they would have a, a, a big turnover in the cast. Somebody who was the star, you know, George Clooney, Juliana Margulies, Noah Wiley, whoever. Then somebody else would come in and they would get their star moment. Mm -hmm. It kind of became the way that the show operated. Grey's Anatomy is different, A, because it's named for one of the characters and she narrates the action most of the time. And B, because I do think the setup of the ensemble was so strong, so fun, so different, really, than a lot of stuff that was on TV at the time. Like now we could point to a dozen shows that have that comedy, that lightness, the sexiness, and the sadness, and the darkness. And this show really got that tone right. The residents grow up, and I was growing up. I was just getting tired of the weird finales that seemed to not make sense unless you think of it as a science fiction show. Christina was my favorite character. When I heard that Sandra O oh was leaving after 10 years, that is when I stopped watching the show. From time to time, I'd, I'd read some headlines. A year after Sandra O oh left, those who follow entertainment news know that Patrick Dempsey kind of had a meltdown and they had to write him out quite quickly. I'm not here to say that they handled that departure wrong. I don't know all of the moving parts involved when the star of your show comes and says, I got to get out of here and you got to make it happen and it's got to be now. But the way that it was done got people really upset super upset. Now we got to remember back in the three network day, a show like MASH might have 40 million people watching it a week. Mm -hmm. Grey's Anatomy is considered a hit show in its early days, maybe had 17 to 20 million people watching a week. And now it might be 6 million people and it's still considered a hit. That's how much the landscape has changed. Yeah. And the people who were very invested in Grey's Anatomy in the beginning it was a much bigger share of the audience. So why I'm saying this is, at the time, it was big news. And it stirred this debate of who do these characters belong to when we've invested time and energy and some people having weddings themed on Derek and Meredith. You know, people falling in love with Kyle Chandler and Jeffrey Dean Morgan and, and all the wonderful music that the music supervisors brought in and sold to us. Would Brandy Carlisle have a career without Grey's Anatomy? Yeah. I don't know. So it is a juggernaut, right? 
Patrick Dempsey has a cancer center in honor of his mother. It serves people who have cancer and people who are survivors, have lost people to cancer, and people who are caretakers. This is his project that he's very proud of. When he comes and says, I got to get out of here, and I know you guys want me out of here, and just write me out as fast as you can, I think that would have been an opportunity to do something to bring awareness to this healthcare issue, right? which they have done very well in since and in the past, brought awareness and criticism and commentary to many of the stupid things we do in our healthcare system that don't make any sense. In any case, here's what I would do. Derek, one morning, he's either short of breath, he's peeing blood, he breaks an arm, something happens out of the ordinary. It's not difficult to say, maybe he neglected his health or his checkup or whatever, and they find out that it's cancer. So they do a little bit of time lapse. He's done the treatment, but it's not effective. So they do another little bit of a time jump and they're telling him you only have a few months, Derek. And so they do another little bit of a time jump and they've got him in hospice. And then they do another little bit of a time jump and they've put in him to rest. I think that for me, this would have preserved loving memory I have of this couple. I think that would have been a way to serve a lot of interests, made it a little bit less of a painful dispatch for a storytelling perspective and for my own sense of symmetry and being able to to walk away from the show and walk away from the feelings. Oh my God, they they built this show around these two for 10 years. And then to just kind of have it yanked abruptly is not a feeling I can settle with. So that's mm -hmm. my ending for Grey's Anatomy. If it works for you, feel free to adopt it. Have some other ending, adopt that. But that's my fan fiction fix for the end of Grey's Anatomy. I like it. You know what I, what I like about it is that the way that they suddenly gave them marriage problems. I felt very like forced and rushed. And that's where I agreed with Shonda Rhimes because she said that she was trying to help him have less screen time and have him be on set less time. In her mind, they'd been through so much that to just have him leave his wife and kids didn't make sense for the characters. But I think in that way that writing a TV show is a, is a real job, just like any other job, she had deadlines, she had pressures, she had the studio, she had, you know, whatever. When you work at the New York Times and you have an obituary pre-written for someone, just like have a little notebook of when this actor <laughs> comes and says, okay, I'm out, you have four or five ideas that you've already pre-vetted. The audience, mm -hmm. and they deserve better. They've hung in there for all that time. They're loyal to your mm -hmm. show. They have developed feelings for these characters and empathy for their for what they've gone through. And you've grown with them after this many years. Mm. Christina got a good send off because she, she planned did. it. She she planned it, you know, ahead of time. Actually, I wasn't mad at Izzy's send off because I felt like she came back in order for Karev to say, I want you to have a beautiful life and it's just not going to be with me. That was okay too. We can go down the list of <laughs> everybody else who was shot, cut in half by an airplane, exploded. That was a particularly brutal season. They, yeah. they killed like five main characters and. The Hellmouth is clearly in Seattle, and <laughs> Seattle Grace slash Grace Loan Memorial is clearly built on the Hellmouth. I'm so glad you addressed that. <laughs> I don't know if that was Shonda Rhimes' intention, but she wrote a sci-fi. It really is a sci-fi show. <laughs> <laughs> Let's tell people what we're watching. What are you watching now? I stumbled onto a show called The Power on Amazon, not to be confused with Power on Hulu. It was released on Amazon Prime just this May. It's a sci-fi drama, and it's based on a Naomi Alderman book of the same name. And apparently it's a pretty close adaptation because she's an executive producer for the show. It stars Tony Collette, John Leguizamo, and Josh Charles okay. of uh, Cutting Edge fame. 
victim, right? It was that was wait, no, that wasn't it wasn't from oh, what is he from now? He definitely was in a Moira Kelly movie though. What were I don't remember I what they were in. So. Dang. He was also wonderful in uh, The Good Wife, but I just see him as a teenager, you know? We can, we can edit that. I'll figure out what it is. <laughs> so the premise of this Threesome. Show... He was in Threesome oh, with Laura Flynn Boyle and Stephen Baldwin. Ew. Oh my God. Of course. I remember sitting in a Papa's on chair watching that with Sean and... <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. Sorry. Okay, the power. Okay, the premise is that suddenly all over the world, teenage girls start to develop these electrical charges from their fingers. And it allows them to like electrocute people and start fires and in one instance, crash a plane. And first everybody thinks it's a hoax, but there's a young journalist from uh, Namibia and he uploads a video of his friend and her friend standing around in a circle, shocking each other. And it goes viral. And of course, mass panic ensues. People think it's a contagion. Girls are stigmatized and isolated. The government starts pulling them out of school and putting them on basically a blacklist. And everybody's freaked out and scared and confused. Nobody has any answers, but they immediately start treating them as enemies and in some instances terrorists. Of course, the government from country to country handles this in various terrifying ways based on you know what freedoms the women in those countries either have or don't have. Tony Killett plays the mayor of Seattle and she has a teenage daughter herself. Her husband is John Leguizamo and he's a therapist. I don't want to give too much away because it's still a very new show and people might be actively watching it, but there's a really interesting twist that explains what's really happening. And just also talking about how women and girls are not listened to. It's not even an allegory though because Tony Collette gives a speech relating to the rollback of Roe v. Wade. It's a heavy show and it's kind of scary at times, but it's also triumphant and hopeful when you see the girls figuring out how to use their powers and how to join forces with each other. I'm only about four episodes in. I'm excited to see where that goes, but it seems like they're going to follow the book pretty closely. So that's fun. I think you would like that one a lot. All right. Okay. Mine is Our Flag Means Death. Have you sampled any of that yet? No, I read a little bit about it, but no, not yet. Well, you and James and Shane and Aparna and basically everyone have over and over again recommended what we do in Shadows, which I don't know why. It just didn't grab me. Sure. Flight of the Concords. I loved some of the music, but the series <laughs> didn't really grab me. So when Our Flag Means Death has some of the same producers and cast and writers, Mm-hmm. Comes along, I thought, meh. But Reese Darby, who stars as Steed Bonnet, I've seen a lot of his stand-up, and I thought, well, I'll give it a try. It's on Max. The creator's name is David Jenkins. What he said was he just had an interest in history and piracy and Steed Bonnet. He was reading that at some point, he and Blackbeard actually met, and they sailed together for about a year. Oh, and he's like, isn't this crazy that like two of the most murderous, well-known pirates uh, in our world history just met up and hung out for a year and nobody knows what <laughs> happened. <laughs> I'm going to dream what happened, you know, during this time. David Jenkins is the creator, Reese Darby stars, and a lot of very familiar character actors, a great cast, and then Taika Watiti plays Blackbeard. Damn, he makes a good one. He (laughs) kind of seamlessly goes between deranged and comedic and dark and sunny and in love and heartbroken. And it's really cool to see a show so funny and madcap have an actor doing all of those things. It starts with Steed Bonnet. He's a gentleman, a British gentleman, abandoning his family for adventure on the high seas. Partway into the series, they meet up with Blackbeard's ship. So they struggle, and uh, then their crews kind of begrudgingly combine. Then Steed and Blackbeard start to have a romance. The first season uh, ends with them being separated. I won't go into why that is, 
So the next season is going to pick up. Are they going to find each other again? Just like a fun, weird, high seas adventure. If you liked Flight of the Concords, I'm sure this comedy is probably right up your alley. But there's something even more enticing about it to me. We do this because we love each other and we often talk about television. But if you like the episode and you want to kick five bucks to our charity for the episode this week, that's World Central Kitchen. Jose Andres, this man deserves to be made king, president, Nobel Peace Prize, whatever. I don't know. King of the universe, supreme commander, everything. Okay. Yeah. He shows up no matter how bad the crisis is, wherever it is, with his food, with his friends, and he feeds people and he makes them feel like they're seen in a terrible, terrible situation. They came up with this amazing concept of not just sh coming in and, and bringing food, but like figuring out a way to use the resources on the ground using restaurants and caterers and people who are already in these areas, employing them and helping them feed their community, which is amazing. You get a chance to watch the documentary about him. It's wonderful. It's called We Feed People. I watched it on the Disney Plus, but I think you can watch it on other places by now. He's doing such good stuff out there. He shows up for any humanitarian crisis, any natural disaster. When nobody else can get there, they figure out a way to get there. It's wonderful. And he's so, so self-effacing too. Yeah. When People praise him. He's like, oh, I just do, you know, I'm just a cook. I'm just doing mm -hmm. what anybody would want to do. And it's like, but no. Anyway, <laughs> World Central yeah. Kitchen, their site is wck.org. You can also find them on Instagram and a bunch of their links, WC Kitchen. If you like the show or even if you don't like it, kick them a few dollars. Yeah. We appreciate it. Okay. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Share your endings with us at RecConnection.com or on Instagram at RecConnection.